That actually happened to me in an inter- interview once with this like really rich Russian collector, and he we're having a conversation. His ringtone goes off, and it was like Usher and Lil John, and I was like trying to control my face because like yeah yeah, and I, but he didn't say he wasn't just like oh I'm sorry I know like the ringtone's an inside joke. He was like it's my wife, and then he just like took the call, and I was like sick ringtone. Hey everyone, I'm Michelle, the executive producer of this program. If you've been with us for a while, you know that I don't host episodes, but I did host this one and I had a fantastic time talking with Elise Harrella, who's a sociologist of art and culture teaching at the Maryland Institute College of Art. Yeah, I'm not an art historian and this is confusing to sociologists as well. Her first book published in 2022 was entitled Art of Transition, the Field of Art in Post-Soviet Russia. In this episode, we not only talk about art in 1990s Russia and beyond, but in Soviet Russia as well. This was a fun one for me, and I hope you enjoy. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Okay, well, Elise, welcome to the show. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. You are a sociologist of art and culture. You study art in the Soviet and post-Soviet space. So how did you come to this field? Yeah, so yeah, I am a sociologist. And how I got to that, I always knew that I wanted to study post-socialist Russia and do field work there. And I wasn't exactly sure how I wanted to do that or what I was going to look at. Um, I was I'm really interested in the cultural differences of class. And so I was initially interested in how is a, a society that was ostensibly classless for 70 years, how are they developing these different classes through culture, right? Like, so how are rich people learning to be rich? Um, and so I started with that. And then I was like, how do you look at culture? How do you look at class through culture? Or how do you look at these sort of burgeoning, you know, um, wealthy stratum of society? How do you look at them through culture? Um, and so I was thinking of a variety of different ways. Um, consumption, something I'm also interested in, sociology of consumption. And at this point, I don't know, this was like 2010, maybe Russian art collectors were really in the news. And so I was thinking, oh, art, it's a rarefied topic. I mean, I've always been interested in art, but not necessarily through lens of sociology. And art is a rarefied, you know, subject matter um, that's accessible, especially for collecting only to a very few. And suddenly you had these Russian, these rich Russian collectors who were just making a splash on the world scene and um, making some really big purchases and really trying to make their mark as collectors. And so I thought, okay, that would be an interesting thing to look at. And, you know, what I was reading was all coming from Western media about these Russian collectors. And I'm like, there's got to be another story if you actually go. Um, so that's where I, I started thinking about studying Russian art collectors. And then when I went to Russia, of course, there's another story. Of course, it was very hard to access these rich Russian collectors, <laughs> but you know, and I had no contact. So I got there and I'm like cold emailing people like, Hey, talk to me. So that's how, I, that's how I started. And then I, when I got there, I was like, okay, there is more of a story here, but I talked to collectors. I talked to basically anyone who was part of the Russian contemporary art world, you know, collectors, gallerists, artists, um, critics, museum people, uh, auction houses from all different sides to sort of understand the field in general. Fantastic. So as you said, your expertise is mostly post-Soviet, but I would really love before we get into that era, I would love for you to kind of take us back into, into the Soviet era and kind of walk us through how art 
changed and transformed during that time. You mentioned state-imposed structure. So what did that look like, perhaps starting with Lenin? Yeah, that's a really great question. And in fact, the generation that I'm looking at in the 1990s specifically, they show transition quite quite distinctly because they had an art education under socialism. So actually, let me start with, can I start with Stalin, actually? <laughs> Basically, well, you can start before Lenin, but, you know, that art is starting to change and you, you start having this really exciting, one of the most exciting periods, I think, um, in the 20th century of art in in the 1920s, for example. Um, and you have the Russian avant-garde, you know, which is some of the highest price Russian art in the market and very difficult to get um, and very exciting art. And it was, you know, something that was distinctly Russian, distinctly new at the time that was really, you know, sort of exploring this new socialist project, the new socialist man and woman, right? Um, and then jump forward a little bit to Stalin. I think it was 1932, the decree that all art must be in the style of socialist realism. So suddenly all this revolutionary art, avant-garde art that was supposedly, you know, championing this new Soviet person, um, suddenly that's like too bourgeois. So now Stalin's like, it all has to be in socialist realism. And so the thing about socialist realism, it's supposed to be accessible to the masses. So, you know, it's like just very straightforward propaganda. It's the ones with the women on the tractors with the kerchiefs under their head in the field. And it's extolling the, all of the glories of socialism. Right. Um, and in these very positive ways or in these sort of hardworking, showing hardworking people. And so, and it's, the thing about it is it's this realist style. It's, you know, there's nothing abstract about it. Um, it's very straightforward in its depiction of the world or of, you know, and some of that are, I think it often is criticized as not being good art. Um, some of it, I think, you know, technically they had ex a lot of them had really extraordinary skills and were very well trained as painters, for example. Um, but it wasn't, they, there wasn't a lot of room to be terribly imaginative. Um, so this is the official style. Then what you see is this development of an underground or the West often likes to refer to it as dissident art, even though many of these artists didn't consider themselves dissidents, but um, in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Um, so this, this underground art is against the style, this official socialist realism style. So there would be some crackdowns occasionally. Um, you could be imprisoned for making art outside of the sanctioned style. But a lot of these dissident or, you know, the, these underground artists oftentimes were employed by the state in some ways in the capacity as official artists. So a lot of them were illustrators for children's books, for example. Um, so they would get, and this is, you know, in terms of infrastructure, they would have a way to fund their livelihood and then they would make the art that they wanted sort of underground, quote unquote. And oftentimes that art would be smuggled to the West. Um, so you see like the, the Norton Dodge collection here, which is a lot of that type of art. And so, you know, then you have basically you're having the unofficial and the official two streams of art being produced. And then by the time Perestroika comes along, 80s and then the 90s, you have this new generation, this last Soviet generation that I'm looking at in the 90s. And they were trained under, you know, they had this figurative sort of socialist realist training in the Soviet period. But then suddenly they hit the 90s. They're young adults, right? And so they're, I'd say they're born between 1951 and 1970. Young adults, so they, you know, they're just coming into sort of their own artistically. And then they're able to produce any type of art that they like. Right. And they are not really part of that underground generation. So they're trying to differentiate themselves from, as most generations of artists do, they 
differentiate themselves from those artists that came before them to develop their own style. But they're also developing their own style in a period where it's it's not only their artistic identity, but identity in general is being refashioned to a post-socialist identity. What does that mean? So I was trying to look at the 1990s as a really precarious time, right? And so the title is actually a quote from an artist of this generation, Awful But Interesting. And I don't want to romanticize this period of time because it was a really challenging time to live for many people, right? Precarity being like, do I have enough to eat? Do I have a home anymore? Do I like, it's a really challenging time. So I'm not trying to romanticize it and say there was so much freedom to develop yourself. But as this artist is talking about, it was a really challenging time, but it also was really interesting because there was this new, a new freedom to create what one wanted outside of all these, these um, bounded aesthetic conventions that had existed before, both officially and unofficially. So I want to return to this idea that you were talking about concerning good art. So has any of the art produced during the Stalin era, would you say it is good art? Does the West consider it to have artistic merit at all? No, I mean, generally not. I think it's understood as something maybe interesting, but not in, in terms of like the canon of like what or the art historical, you know, the idea of like what fits in art historically. This is seen as an outlier because it it basically took a bunch of different styles, put them together. And it's like, this is the best painting of all time. And then, so it's not, it's not seen. I mean, now you're seeing some people starting to collect it. I think on historical basis or in Russia, they're starting to collect it. I think there's also a museum that was built that looks at this kind of art. So in terms of like a historical moment being important, but in terms of how the West understands like, you know, the, the progression of art history, it, it's not seen as having any particular kind of artistic merit. Okay. So I'm particularly fascinated with the Khrushchev period because there's so much going on. I mean, Khrushchev himself was a character. So when the thaw first begins, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there is this relaxation that happens towards the art field in general. Artists are given more creative freedom and there isn't so much rigidity. State control kind of pulls back. And then as Khrushchev kind of gets older, there's a return to stricter regulations. So can you talk about what exactly was going on during this really colorful period and how did it impact the art and artists themselves? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I'm, I'm less knowledgeable about that period because I focus on the post-socialist sure. period. Um, but during Khrushchev, I mean, there was, you're right. So there's this thaw and this relaxing, and then there's this show of force that happened, like these kind of key moments where there's these show of force. Like one very famous episode was the bulldozer exhibition where I think it was outside of Moscow. And I don't remember exactly what year it is. It's failing me, but basically these artists decide to have this exhibition and then they literally take a bulldozer and ruin it and destroy it. And one of the artists that I talked to or that I interviewed, he you know, he was at it at that exhibition, but he was 14, right? So he's this generation where like that clearly had a really big impact on him, um, but that he, you know, he didn't have the same way of viewing the world because he's coming up later. Um, but during this period, you really see, you know, that 
underground art scene in particular. I mean, during this period, they're quite prolific and you start seeing that art coming out into the West. And that I'd say becomes really a rallying cry around the West for championing Russian art, right? And in my thesis is like part of the reason why the West loves, I mean, I'm not saying I love that art and I don't, I'm not saying it's not great art, but I think a lot of the reason it got a lot of attention is because the West like to reframe that art as having the same sort of enemy, right? That like ideologically they're on the right side, right? And so therefore they're seeing, you know, like, oh, this art is against the Soviet Union, which is our quote unquote enemy. And so therefore we need to support these artists, right? And then when the Soviet Union ends, what ends up happening to that support for Russian artists? It goes away. No one's interested in Russian art anymore because they don't have that same shared enemy of the Soviet regime, right? And so, but I think during this period, it's sort of like a heyday for these nonconformist artists, these these underground artists who are against or who, you know, are not, you know, making socialist realist art. And a lot of them use someone like um, Bulatov. He uses the language of socialist realism. So he uses the language of official art, but the messaging and, you know, he uses it then to critique the Soviet regime and to critique society in general, right? But, you know, you're not going to see that in sort of official museum, like in the Tretikov or something, right? Like, <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. Okay. So to what extent was there Western influence in the art produced during the socialist period and under any of the premieres? Yeah, that's a good. I mean, I think it was scant insofar as it was hard often to get access. And I look at this actually particularly with audiences in the post-socialist period, because in a lot of ways they were missing a big chunk of art history in their education. So suddenly, if you've only been seeing certain types of images for a long time, you know, certain aesthetic forms, and then you start seeing contemporary art, you don't have the linkage, the sort of historical linkage to see how you arrive at, you know, Duchamp's like urinal, whatever. Why is that art? Right. And so just being like, this isn't, this isn't art. Like this doesn't make sense to me when I'm used to seeing a particular form of art. Right. But in terms of, you know, the, the impact on artists, I mean, I think this is one of the critiques that the West, Western art interlocutors have of especially the younger or the, you know, nineties or some post-Soviet art is because they said they're just trying to mimic Western art. So basically saying like there's less influence throughout the Soviet period on these artists because they don't have access. They don't, they're not in conversation except for the ones who leave. Right. But they're not in conversation with Western artists. They're not part of this larger conversation of art. And so then by the time the, the post-socialist period hits, they can see it, you know, or things that are smuggled in and then they're accused of then sort of aping the West, right. Or like trying to mimic the, what they see instead of developing their own style. The, some of the artists talk about when they would get a, like, a Western art magazine smuggled in and they would all look at it and, you know, looking at, especially looking at the prices of how much something costs and being like really kind of blown away by this. But in, in those ways, like those kinds of materials, particularly, I don't know necessarily about like art materials, but in terms of visual materials to see like those types of things were definitely being that they had access to those. You also study the consumption of art. So I'm just wondering in Soviet Russia, how much did everyday people actually consume art? Were they collecting it? Where did the art go? 
that was produced in Russia. Right. I think it was fairly limited in terms of, you know, these. Well, let me let me rephrase that in terms of the sort of nonconformist underground art. I don't think your average person was buying that. I think there was like a particular small art circle and they were maybe circulating art between themselves um, or showing art in these sort of underground ways, people's kitchens. In terms of the average person consuming art, I mean, there were no private collections, right? So maybe you have a reproduction of socialist realism or, you know, you have a reproduction of a piece of art, but it's not like there, there wasn't the sense of art collecting um, of that kind of consumption, as you would see, as you see in the later periods, but even in the in the post socialist period, like who is able to collect art, of course, is still quite limited. Yeah. Okay. So then, where did the art go? Like the the nonconformist. <laughs> yeah. Art? Like, well, nonconformist or conformist. I mean, if it was state sponsored, where did it go? Was it just in display on display at galleries or? Yeah. I mean, I th- that's a good question about where the state sponsored art has gone. I mean, I think, like I said, there are some people who are collecting it. I think it is in maybe still exists in larger collections. At least with the nonconformist art, a lot of that is in the West. I think the largest collection of it may be in the West. There there were people who were collecting during the Soviet period who have collections. And, you know, I think some of that is a little opaque when I would try to find these things out. Couldn't necessarily do it. But, you know, it exists in various institutions, um, you know, whether or not. And in terms of galleries, I mean... Yeah, insofar as any gallery has like a backlog of, you know what I mean? Like they collect these things, but I'm not sure the extent to which it's in private hands. Okay, so let's talk about 1990 now Mm -hmm. and the imminent fall of the Mm -hmm. USSR. So what is the feeling? A lot of these artists are pretty young, I assume. We're talking about really the last Soviet generation, as Alexei Yurchuk mentioned in his book. Yeah, I'm borrowing from Yurchuk. Yes, yes, yes. exactly. Yurchuk, I think we all borrow from Yurchuk at some well, it's point. An inter- it's a, it, and like Boyum as <laughs> yes, well. Yes, Boyum you know, too. Like the children mm-hmm. of stagnation, basically, yeah. like who are of that particular generation. Right, absolutely. So what was the atmosphere like? Can you paint the picture. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, at least from, you know, as the artist told me, I mean, I think what all of them emphasized a lot was the decimation of infrastructure, right? So whether or not, you know, that infrastructure, like I said, a lot of them were trained through art education under the Soviet Union or, you know, had certain kinds of benefits that came from that Soviet infrastructure, right? Like, state-sponsored studio, art studios, for example, um, or jobs, for example, like uh, as illustrators or in some capacity, were able to support themselves as artists from sort of official channels, even if they were not doing that kind of art. So by the time the 1990s comes around in terms of precarity, yes, it's a lot of the art community organized around squats. So either they were living in squats or using those as studio space. Um, and one of the early, early galleries, which I'm using the word gallery, but the galleries often, especially in the first half of the nineties are not actually commercial. So these galleries, you know, they're businesses, but there's no audience to buy this art. No one has money to buy art. And as one artist said, like no one, no one cared about art. Like we were just interested in survival, but they're still making art. Right. So in this sense, they have these galleries, which are really just kind of, I mean, they're institution building. 
really, because there is no, there's no longer institution. There are still museums, but ironically, the museums start to act more in a commercial sense. They're the ones who are getting sort of sponsorship, this burgeoning kind of capitalist relationship. And so that, that actually looks a little bit more commercial. And these galleries are kind of popping up and they're, they're becoming these centers for organizing of people to like hang out, to show each other their work, right? So they'd have these shows, bring together the people in the community who are interested in art or artists and have a conversation and no one's buying anything, right? But yeah, these, one of the most famous ones was they were just like squatting in a building. And you also see during this time, because of the economic precarity, because no one has any money, because access to, you know, even basic items are difficult to get. Art supplies are really expensive. I mean, there's, this is still a problem that people were having when I did these interviews in 2014. Um, art supplies are still extraordinarily expensive. So people had to be, artists had to be really creative. And that's why you see a, um, a big jump in performance art happening in the 1990s. Someone like Oleg Kulik, who, you know, he has this famous piece where he acts like a dog. He's like naked on all fours and like, it's basically resourcefulness. If you can't afford to paint because you can't get a canvas, you can't get paints, you turn to the body, right? And so you, or you start seeing these, like the Moscow actionists doing, you know, performances, but also doing actions, right? Like dropping banners or having banners in the woods, you know, these, these sorts of things where it's sometimes it's political, but it's also resourcefulness. Um, so this is also happening during the nineties. Um, and then, so in ways to, to deal with this lack of institution, right? Institution building through these sort of non-commercial galleries, these spaces and sort of using squats as a way to do that, but then also thinking a lot about form. And so, for example, and I talk about this in the paper, you know, two different ways. So if you have an audience that isn't part of this art history, right? They don't know contemporary art. They don't, and you're not, you're trying to reach an audience. How do you do that? So this one group of artists, AES plus F, they focused on the idea of reproducibility. So like of having, you know, they would make these postcards of their art and then reproduce them. And they were high quality postcards, but it was a similar idea from the Soviet period, right? Of having access to people by reproducing things. And so people can share those images as opposed to one person gets to own a piece of art and they get to look at it or it's in these, these museums, right? So they're borrowing from these ideas developed in the Soviet period, but then using them in this new space for new types of art. And similarly with Vinogradov and Dubrasarsky, an art duo that has been painting together since the nineties, they also use the sort of the style of socialist realism, but then they are painting you know, contemporary figures in the nineties and they're making commentary about sort of this new capitalism, but in this old style of socialist realism. So instead of having Stalin with a bunch of adoring children, they're painting uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger with a bunch of adoring children in a sort of pastoral scene. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So they're being creative with form so that it's accessible to their audience, but it also has new messages. And then they're also institution building and dealing with this precarity and this sort of resource by, by being resourceful with what they have. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned that the title of your paper came from a quote. And I just want to read that quote because it's super interesting. It's from Vasily, who is an artist of the last Soviet generation. And he said that no one was interested in art at all. They were interested in survival. There was no chance to sell anything. These 10 years were awful, but interesting. And we had a lot of energy and ideas. 
And I just want to say that I specifically had researched as well this last Soviet generation, but looking at music and musicians, rock music specifically, and the development of that in in Moscow and Leningrad or St. Petersburg. And so it's funny because I interviewed a lot of musicians and also music consumers. Yeah. And the things that they say sound so similar to this quote. I mean, it's super fascinating. The the energy and ideas, word for word, I think I heard that from like two dozen people. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, it's really amazing. The optimism that was permeating the environment at this point. I mean, specifically for the youth, right? And then... I mean, doors have burst wide open and then there's this like this freedom, you know? Totally. And I think when you couple that, like this moment of being like, things are challenging, but there's optimism for, you know, a new world, couple that with youth, right? And it's like, I mean, that must have been so potent, especially if you're a creative person, like rock musician, which I would love to read your work, um, (laughs) rock musician or artist, right? And then this same feeling then by the time 2000 hits, Mm -hmm. and there's another, I interviewed another artist who talks about what happens when suddenly there is a lot of money and suddenly these infrastructures have been built and now suddenly there are foundations and there are arts, you know, philanthropy and the way the market then changes that feeling. I mean, also politically, right? By 2000, things are shifting. But by the time that market has grown and basically artistic expression has begun to be mediated through the market. And then that feeling of sort of wild optimism, wild freedom artistically is gone. And it's like, yes, it's good that we can eat now. Yes, it's good that we're not concerned about survival. But what is lost in that transition to a more organized form of capitalism I think that was, you know, it was this sort of like sad nostalgia for like, you know, yes, my life is more comfortable now, but artistically, like, I think in the the one example, you know, he was like, in the 90s, we could take 25 pounds of mud and just dump it in a gallery. And that was art, right? But now we can't do that because collectors want something for their collection that's not ephemeral, right? They want something that's real. Right. They can put above their couch or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah, it's this whole idea of art for art's sake versus art for commerciality. Absolutely. Right. Totally the same feedback that I got from musicians during the seventies, eighties and nineties, eighties, particularly. I feel like especially for a rock coming out of Lenin, like that, (laughs) that whole period of yeah. Music. Yeah. But obviously it applies to all the arts because during the eighties, everyone is starting to exercise their creative freedom, trying to push the boundaries and Gorbachev's not really helping things. He may not be encouraging it directly, but he is encouraging it to some extent by saying we can't go on living this way. There was this feeling that we're working towards something, that we're trying to express ourselves. And even though they said none of the music that they were making had anything to do with politics, but it definitely did have something to do with politics. Yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely some were more explicit about that than others. And some, you know, also sort of understood it as like, even if it was divorced from politics, that there was something interesting about being in Russia at this particular time, right? And because of the generation before them, that those nonconformist artists, the older generation, a lot of the most important figures had left by the end of the 70s. They weren't even in Russia anymore. And so they... They were like, or the Soviet Union, right? So, and they, you know, they were like, but we want to be here because there's some wild stuff happening here. And, and we also get to, I mean, I don't think they thought of this at that particular period, but looking back at now, they were in a position to define what it meant to be, what contemporary Russian art was, right? Which is like, 
that's kind of intoxicating if you, you know, care about aesthetic expression, right? And you're like, no one's doing it. It's kind of not tabula rasa, but that it's this, this opening up of like a possibility, right? Totally. The term that's coming to mind is, and I didn't say it, but it's cultural patriot. Oh, wow. Oh, I like that. Ooh. It was the, actually the subject of my book, Sivan of Gorodzev. And he definitely said that he was a cultural patriot 100% because it wasn't about patriotism to the state yeah. or even love of country. It was the sense of culture that, that kept him like tethered to Russia. They feel like they're creating something that is uniquely Russian. But in this new moment, right? That's not going to have those those same sort of constraints. And I, I look at something, I don't call it cultural patriot, but I like that. I wish I'd come across that earlier. But in my book, I talk about with the, I have a chapter on the market and about galleries and basically like the way gallery building or galleries have been understood in the West. In Russia, I argue that you in the 90s and 2000s, you have this Yes, it's the market, but you also have the sense of building the nation through yeah. the market and, and the idea that they have this nationalist orientation and not nationalist like capital and Putin style nationalist. I mean, like nationalist in the sense of what you're talking about, right? Of this, like, this is, this is Russia. this all day, but totally. I want to bring us to, to the current crisis that we find ourselves with the war in Ukraine, with even the recent headlines in Russia, with the Wagner Group and Prigozhin and all this chaos that's unfolding. How has the Russian state's attitude toward art changed since the 90s? And perhaps you could even start with the inauguration of Vladimir Putin into our world, into our lives. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I started this research, it was sort of the beginning of the 2010s. And um, you would see, you know, every once in a while, a story would hit Western media about some artists that have been censored, right? So there's like Putin and Medvedev and they're wearing women's lingerie, like that artist is banned. Then there's the one, um, oh, the artist, I can't remember his name at the moment, but during the Olympics, Sochi Olympics, he had done this piece that the there were nooses instead of the Olympic rings. Right. So, you know, and then the, the gallerists to organize that, like they had to leave the country. Right. So there were these moments of crackdown, especially when it was considered political art. So like they were taking notice and they were not pleased, but it wasn't. Well, and then there, yeah, there were actually a few other um, artists who'd done Pussy Riot stuff, um, paintings. And then they were, you know, they oftentimes the art that would be persecuted would be political like Putin or it would be something that had uh, offended religious belief. So basically they had this loophole in a legal loophole such that that would protect vandals who destroyed art. So for example, say I saw a painting and, you know, let's say it has a picture of like the baby Jesus, like with a Coca-Cola and it's like some critique of capitalism. It's kind of obvious, fine, whatever. But if I then destroyed it, I could say in court, this painting offended my religious belief. And it made me destroy it. it, made me be violent. And then the courts would say, okay, actually the fault of why you destroy this is the artist. It's their fault or it's the gallerist who put this here. So they're actually gonna get charged instead of the person who destroyed the piece of art, 
right? So there is this way of which they're trying to censor art in particular ways. Now, the way the artists felt that they were like, yeah, kind of worried about it, kind of not. They were sort of like, you know, I do my thing, especially the, what I call the first post-socialist generation, which is, comes after the last socialist generation. They had barely considered themselves Russian. They're like, we're sort of international. Like, yes, we are Russian, but we're like, they consider themselves part of an international conversation. Like, we're not particularly interested in, in political themes, right? But what's interesting is that, you know, so it was, it was a specter that existed, but it wasn't concerning. And then I noticed after the invasion, Ukraine, um, you know, all the artists that I knew there and like all the people I followed on Instagram, it was like quiet, like no one was posting stuff and it was all very coded. And now they're starting to be more visible in terms of their protest content. Um, but I don't actually know what's going on. The gallerists that I talked to were like, everything has changed and then went quiet. And, you know, my, so I, you know, and, and some of the artists were like, it's, like, how can we, it was sort of two minds. It was like, how can we create art at this moment? Because what's happening is disgusting. And, and we, you know, versus like, we have to create art now more than ever because we have to comment on what's happening, right? So um, there's that, but what's one interesting thing is that this one artist in 2014, so when I was there, it was like right after Crimea and this artist had chosen to stay in Russia. They, they didn't immigrate and she had said, you know, we lived here through the 90s, through the, you know, end of the Soviet Union, all this chaos, all this precarity, and we've never wanted to leave. And now after, you know, this 2014 Crimea, she said, now things are different and now it might be time to leave. And I was like, yeah, okay, you know, whatever. And then I thought about this later after, and I was like, oh, she was right. Like things are really different. And now we're starting to see at the other end, just how different and, you know, I, I don't know if there'll be an, an exodus of the artists, but. Coming back to the whole cultural patriot thing, are there any of those left in Russia today? Because if people are so willing to leave to escape mobilization orders or any variety of persecution, and not necessarily because they're against the war, but if they leave and are still producing art, are they cultural patriots? I mean, this is a great question, and I look forward to the next scholar who's <laughs> going to be looking at this. Like, I think it's really going to fundamentally change, you know, orientations to art, to Russia, of course, to, you know, just so, you know, it'll be really interesting to see like where that, where that ends up in this next, in this next generation. So in terms of that kind of evolution here in the U.S., we've had cancel culture, which has spurred this trend of we're just going to cancel all of Russian culture. How do you feel about that? Do you agree? Disagree? You know, in the West saying we're canceling Russian culture feels really knee jerk and not terribly productive or generative. And it's, it's more, you know, who is the cultural producer? Where is that cultural production coming from? And I think you have a lot of, you know, everyday Russian people and artists and musicians and people who are producing culture and engaging with culture who are horrified, scared, and then creative. And they'll see how they, but I don't, I don't think, you know, Russian culture as, as a, you know, should be forgotten or pushed aside, but it is a really interesting moment to talk about Russian culture, right. And to talk about, um, Russian cultural forms and, 
you know, I think it's kind of in a pause and, and to see like what then ends up happening. But in terms of canceling, I think, of course not. It just doesn't feel productive to me. I think what's more interesting is to see them. I mean, not to be like all good art has to come from struggle and trauma, but it does definitely shape what types of aesthetic forms come out of as a response to, to repression, to, you know, grotesque versions of power, you know. So now I have perhaps a non sequitur question, but it's a philosophical one. Is all art propaganda? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it depends like how you're defining propaganda, but I think like, I mean, you know, to borrow from someone like Grace, like, can we consider, you know, art produced under socialist realism as propaganda, but not consider art produced for a capitalist market as also propaganda? Like, I think, you know, how can you say which art is free and which one is not? If on the one side you're producing art for dollar signs, I mean, not so distinctly, but do you know what I mean? And so I think there's always something that's going to be informing the type of art we're producing or things that we're responding to. I mean, you could even say, let's be like really like loose about this propaganda just for your own ideas, right? Like, and, and I think Du Bois, you know, to be a sociologist about it, like he said, art should be propaganda. Like you absolutely should try to have a political message. So, right. Absolutely. I fully concur. And with that, Elise Harala, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. This has been amazing. Thank you for inviting me. This was really great. And I feel like I want I want to end with like some like oh, 80s that's totally Soviet happening. Rock. Yes. <laughs> Russian, East European, and Eurasian studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. 